Welcome to The Kinked Wire, the interventional radiology podcast from SIR Publications. You can learn more on our website, sirweb.org slash kinkedwire. This episode provides audio abstracts of papers published in the October 2022 issue of SIR's Journal of Vascular and Interventional Radiology. You can find the full papers on jvir.org. My name is Daniel Kim. Hello, my name is Joseph Moirano, and I'm a fourth-year medical student at the Zucker School of Medicine at Hofstra Northwell. I will be reading the abstract titled, Percutaneous Hemodialysis Fistula Creation by Rajan and colleagues. Two devices have been recently introduced to the European Union and North American clinical practice that allows for percutaneous creation of autogenous hemodialysis fistula. Although there are many similarities between the devices, there are several important differences. The adoption of either or both technologies by an interventionalist may be determined by the individual's familiarity and preferences. Current and future outcomes will shape the acceptance and use of this technology. This review focuses on the similarities and differences between the devices, procedures, published outcomes to date, and their interpretation and other clinical considerations toward the initiation of a successful percutaneous arteriovenous fistula program. Hello, my name is Ty Mattinson, and I am a fourth-year medical student at the University of Washington School of Medicine. I will be reading the abstract titled, Long-Term Results from the Pivotal Multi-Center Trial of Ultrasound-Guided Percutaneous Arteriovenous Fistula Creation for Hemodialysis Access by Hole and colleagues. Purpose. To report the five-year results from the Pivotal Multi-Center Trial of Ultrasound-Guided Percutaneous Arteriovenous Fistula, or PAVF, Creation for Hemodialysis Access. Materials and Methods. The retrospective review of 107 intent-to-treat patients from the pivotal trial provided a long-term follow-up population of 85 patients with a median follow-up duration of 50 months with a range of 12 to 60 months. Data evaluated in the long-term follow-up population group were fistula maturation and usage, secondary procedures, and complications. The Kaplan-Meier analysis of primary patency, assisted primary patency, cumulative patency, and functional patency, which was determined by the time from two-needle cannulation to abandonment, were performed for the attempt-to-treat population. Results. In the long-term follow-up population, 99% of fistulae were mature, with 99% of patients requiring hemodialysis using their PAVF. Sustained fistulate use was achieved in 92% of patients, with seven patients not using their PAVF because they were not on dialysis, were on peritoneal dialysis, and refused to use the fistula. Fistula maintenance was required in 31.8% of patients and included fistula dysfunction, thrombosis, cannulation injury, and arm swelling. The number of procedures performed per patient per year to maintain function and patency was 0.32 for years 2 through 5. The cumulative patency rates were 89.5%, and 82.0% for years 1, 2, 3, 4, and 5, respectively. The functional patency was 91.8% at the end of the study. There were no major complications related to PAVF during a long-term follow-up. Conclusions. 
Percutaneous fistula have provided clinically effective and durable access for hemodialysis with low complications. The continued use and evaluation of PAVF are warranted. Hello, my name is Sean Thingy, and I'm a fourth-year medical student at the Lewis Katz School of Medicine at Temple University. I will be reading the abstract titled, Changes in the National Endovascular Management of Femoral Popliteal Arterial Disease an analysis of the 2011 to 2019 Medicare data by Magnowski and colleagues. Purpose, to describe national trends in the utilization of endovascular approaches, including balloon angioplasty, atherectomy, and stent placement for the management of femoropopliteal peripheral arterial disease, or PAD. Materials and methods, the Medicare Physician Supplier Procedure Summary dataset containing 100% of Part B claims was interrogated for years 2011 to 2019. The current procedural terminology codes specific for femoropopliteal angioplasty, stent placement, and atherectomy were used to create summary statistics for utilization by year, place of service such as hospital inpatient, hospital outpatient, and office-based laboratory, and provider specialty, including cardiology, radiology, and surgery. Results. The use of atherectomy increased from 34,732, or 33% of procedures in 2011, to 75,435, or 53% of procedures in 2019, and atherectomy became the dominant treatment strategy for femoral popliteal PAD. The relative utilization of stent placement and angioplasty only decreased concomitantly, from 35% to 20%, and 32% to 27%, respectively, from 2011 to 2019. By 2019, the use of atherectomy was twofold higher in office-based laboratories and in the outpatient hospital setting, with 44,767 office-based atherectomies, compared to 20,901 inpatient atherectomies. Treatment strategy varied by provider specialty in 2011 when cardiologists used atherectomy most frequently, or 43% of the time, whereas radiologists used angioplasty alone for 6% of the time and surgeons stented most frequently, or 37% of the time. By 2019, all specialties utilized atherectomy most frequently with 59% for cardiology, 58% for radiology, and 47% for surgery. Conclusions. The national approach to endovascular management of femoropopliteal PAD has changed since 2011 toward an implant-free strategy, including a multifold increase in the use of atherectomy. Discordant rates of atherectomy use between the ambulatory hospital and office-based settings highlight the need for comparative effectiveness studies to guide management. Hello, my name is Ashley Lau, and I'm a fourth-year medical student at A.T. Still University. I will be reading the abstract titled, Predictors of Clinical Outcomes of Pharmacomechanical Catheter-Directed Thrombolysis for Acute Iliofemoral Deep Vein Thrombosis, Analysis of a Multicenter Randomized Trial by Thrucall and colleagues. Purpose, to identify the baseline patient characteristics that predict who will benefit from pharmacomechanical catheter-directed thrombolysis, or PCDT, of acute iliofemoral deep vein thrombosis, or DVT. Materials and methods. In the acute venous thrombosis, thrombus removal with adjunctive catheter-directed thrombolysis multicenter randomized trial, 381 patients with acute iliofemoral DVT 
underwent PCDT and anticoagulation or anticoagulation alone. The correlations between baseline factors and venous clinical outcomes were evaluated over 24 months using post-hoc regression analyses. Interaction terms were examined to evaluate for differential effects by treatment arm. Results. Patients with clinically severe DVT defined by a higher baseline Volalta score experienced greater effects of PCDT in improving 24-month venous outcomes, including moderate or severe post-thrombotic syndrome, post-thrombotic syndrome severity, and quality of life. Patients with previous DVT had greater effects of PCDT on 24-month post-thrombotic syndrome severity than those in patients without previous DVT. The effects of PCDT on some but not all outcomes were greater in patients presenting with left-sided DVT or a non-compressible popliteal vein. The effects of PCDT did not vary by sex, race, ethnicity, body mass index, symptom duration, hypertension, diabetes, or hypercholesterolemia. Conclusions In patients with acute iliofemoral DVT, greater presenting clinical severity, such as a higher baseline Volalta score, and a history of previous DVT predict enhanced benefits from PCDT. Hello, my name is JC Panagidis, and I'm a fourth-year medical student at Harvard Medical School. I will be reading the abstract titled, Cerebral Venous Sinus Thrombosis Treated with Vacuum Aspiration Thrombectomy Without Thrombolysis, a descriptive and retrospective study of five years' experience at a single center by Romo and colleagues. Purpose. Cerebral venous sinus thrombosis, or CVST, is a rare but life-threatening condition. Mechanical thrombectomy is a treatment option for patients who deteriorate or do not improve despite anticoagulation treatment or those who have a major contraindication to anticoagulation. The purpose of the study was to describe the author's five years of experience in treating CVST with vacuum aspiration thrombectomy without thrombolysis. Materials and Methods For this retrospective study, data were collected from consecutive patients with CVST who received anticoagulation as initial medical treatment and were treated with vacuum aspiration thrombectomy without thrombolysis. Patients were followed up at three months and after one year. Results. The nine patients included in the study had a median age of 37 years and five were women. All nine patients had headaches at presentation, seven had focal neurologic deficits, and seven had intracranial hypertension. Risk factors for CVST were identified in eight patients, and poor prognostic factors were identified in seven patients. In the nine patients, 24 CVST locations were treated. Complete or partial recanalization was achieved in all CVST locations. No procedure-related complications occurred. One patient died of parenchymal hemorrhagic transformation of CVST and vasogenic edema six hours after the procedure. Two patients required neurosurgical intervention. After one year, range 13 to 30 months, all eight surviving patients had good functional outcomes with modified Rankin scale score 0 to 2. Conclusion. For appropriately selected patients with CVST, vacuum aspiration thrombectomy without thrombolysis seemed to be an effective therapy. Hello, my name is Anna Hu, and I am a second-year medical student at the George Washington University School of Medicine and Health Sciences. I will be reading the abstract titled, Interventional Radiologists Achieve Equivalent Outcomes and Lower Costs for Totally Implantable Venous Access Device Placement Compared to Operating Room Placement, by Martin and colleagues. Purpose 
To compare the cost and outcomes of surgical and interventional radiology placement of totally implantable venous access devices, or TIVADs, within a large regional health system to determine the service line with better outcomes and lower costs to the health system. Materials and methods. A retrospective review of all chest port placements performed in the operating room in IR suite over 12 months was conducted at a large integrated health system with six major hospitals. Secondary electronic health record and cost data were used to identify TIVAD placements, follow-up procedures indicating port malfunction, early adverse events within one month after the surgery, late adverse events 2 to 12 months after the procedure, and health system cost of TIVAD placement and management. Results. For 799 total port placements included in the analysis, the rate of major adverse events was 1.3% and 1.9% for IR and OR groups, respectively, during the early follow-up, and 4.9% and 2.8% for the IR and OR groups, respectively, during the late follow-up. Malfunction-related follow-up procedure rates were 1.8% and 2.6% for the IR and OR groups, respectively, during the early follow-up, and 12.4% and 10.5% for the IR and OR groups, respectively, during the late follow-up. The mean cost of port placement per patient was $4,509 and $5,247 for the IR and OR groups, respectively. The difference in per-patient cost of port placement was $1,170 greater for the OR group with a p-value of 0.0074. Conclusions the similar rates of adverse events and follow-up procedures and significant differences in insertion costs suggest that IRTIVAD placement may be more cost-effective than surgical placement without affecting the quality. Hello, my name is Talal Murad, and I'm a fourth-year medical student at the University of Illinois, Peoria. I'll be reading the abstract titled, Comparison Between Antigrade versus Retrograde Urethral Stent Placement for Malignant Urethral Obstruction by Kim and colleagues. Purpose, to compare the technical success of antigrade urethral stent, or AUS, and retrograde urethral stent, or RUS, placements in patients with malignant urethral obstruction, and to determine the predictors of technical failure of RUS. Materials and methods. This study retrospectively included 61 AUS placements performed under fluoroscopic guidance and 76 RUS placements performed under cytoscopic guidance in patients with malignant urethral obstruction from January 2019 to December 2020. Technical success rates of the two techniques were compared using inverse probability of treatment weighting analysis. Logistic regression was used to identify predictive factors for technical failures. Results. Technical success was achieved in 98.4 of the AUS group and 47.4 of the RUS group. After stabilized inverse probability of treatment weighting, the technical success rate was higher in the AUS group than in the RUS group. The independent predictors for technical failure of the RUS procedure were age greater than or equal to 65 years, urethral orifice invasion, and extrinsic cancer, with odds ratios of 5.56, 4.21, and 15.58, respectively. Conclusions. The technical success rate of AUS placement was higher than that of RUS placement in patients with malignant urethral obstruction. RUS failure was associated with age greater than or equal to 65 years, cancer with urethral orifice invasion, and extrinsic urethral obstruction. Hello, my name is John Schantz, and I'm a fourth-year medical student at Thomas Jefferson University. I will be reading the abstract titled, 
radio frequency ablation versus transarterial chemoembolization in patients with hepatocellular carcinoma awaiting liver transplant. An analysis of the scientific registry of transplant recipients by Kolarich and colleagues. Purpose. To evaluate differences in weightless mortality and dropout in liver transplant candidates with hepatocellular carcinoma, or HCC, who undergo radiofrequency, or RF, ablation versus transarterial chemoembolization, or TACE. Materials and methods. From 2004 to 2013, 11,824 patients with HCC in the scientific registry of transplant recipients who underwent RF ablation, or TACE, were included and followed until December 31st, 2019, or five years, whichever came first, and were stratified by the Milan criteria. Competing risk and Cox regression analyses to compare weightless mortality and dropout were performed using adjusted hazard ratios with the RF ablation group as reference. Regression models were adjusted for age, race, sex, calculated model for end-stage liver disease score, tumor size, and number. Results. There was no difference in weightless mortality and dropout for the 1,226 patients outside the Milan criteria who underwent TACE or RF ablation, 19.2% versus 19.0% respectively. There was also no difference in weightless mortality and dropout for the 10,598 patients inside the Milan criteria who underwent TACE or RF ablation, 13.4% versus 12.9% respectively. A subgroup analysis within the Milan criteria demonstrated no difference between TACE and RF ablation treatments in patients with a single tumor less than or equal to 3 centimeters, with a single tumor greater than 3 centimeters, or with more than one tumor. Conclusions. Using the national registry data, no difference was found in weightless mortality and dropout for transplant candidates with HCC who received TACE versus RF ablation. We thank all the medical students who helped with this episode. My name is Anne-Marie Wajay. I am a medical student at the Chicago Medical School at Rosalind Franklin University of Medicine and Science, and I was your audio editor for this episode. The research from this episode appears in the October 2022 issue of JVIR, and you can visit jvir.org for the full papers, other audio content, and much more.